You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you take that and go with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts again this week. Chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. I'm so glad you're here today and we have a gift for you. On those tables in the back of the room, you will find piles of hardback black Bibles. Take one now. If you're frozen to your seat and you can't move, take one after the service is over on your way out. Either way is fine, but that's our gift to you with no strings attached. No strings attached. Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your heart and in your life. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, we've put all the verses that we're going to be studying together today on the screen so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me? In honor of the reading of God's word, we stand because we truly believe that this is the word of God himself. So listen carefully to these words in Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left. He left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We're continuing in this series, Faithful Presence, which is a six-week series on evangelism. So we hit the halfway point today. Now, I've, I've structured this series deliberately. The first half of the series, the first three weeks, uh, are going to be largely, though not exclusively, theological. And then the second half of the series, the, the final three weeks, will be largely, though not exclusively, practical. Now, again, this is a deliberate decision on my part, and here's why. You see, if we launch ourselves out into the great big world, zealous for evangelism, but with a zeal that is not according to knowledge, then we're bound for error. We're bound to make some mistakes along the way. We need, at the beginning of this series, to ask some important questions of a biblical or theological nature, and that's what we've been doing. We started in the first week by asking the question, what is evangelism? What isn't evangelism? What is evangelism? Before we can launch out and do this thing called evangelism, we must understand, biblically speaking, what it is. 
So we covered that territory in week one, the task of evangelism. Now last week, we talked about people. See, if we're going to pick, pick up this task of evangelism, which certainly involves people, then we have to be settled in our own thinking about what we believe about people. And last week, we asked the question, can people really change? And we saw that the Bible's indisputable answer to that question is yes. Yes, people can change. So we're making some great progress with these theological and biblical questions we've been asking, but we're not yet ready for the practicalities. There's one more question. There's one question that remains to be asked. How do people change? Or, rephrased, who is responsible for their change? Or, rephrased again, what is God's role and our role in evangelism? That's the question we'll ask today. See, we now understand this task called evangelism. We now know what we believe about people. People can change. But as we take up this task and carry it to the people, what exactly is our role? When in our assertiveness have we gone too far? When in our passivity have we not gone far enough? What is God's role and our role in evangelism? That's the question we'll ask and seek to answer today. I have three points to this talk, three planks in the argument. Here they are. First, divine sovereignty. We'll talk about what that means. Second, human responsibility. And third, our evangelistic duty. So divine sovereignty, human responsibility, and our evangelistic duty. Let's keep moving. First, divine sovereignty. Think back to the story that we looked at last week, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Probably the most, conversion, the most important and famous conversion story in the history of Christianity. And ask yourself the question, who is in control in this story? See, when we talk about divine sovereignty, when we use this word sovereignty, we're talking about supreme power. We're talking about who is in control. So ask the question, who is in control of this story? Who is in control of salvation in Saul's story? Well, let's remind ourselves of how the story goes. Saul went on his way. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who's in control of this story? Obviously not Saul himself. He's on his way, passionate in his protest and his persecution of Christians, and suddenly, totally uninvited, totally unexpected, Jesus shows up, and boom, it's a gracious collision. Saul falls to the ground, he's blinded. Jesus appears, Jesus shows his power, issues a command, and Saul obeys. So who's in control in this story? God. It's a gracious collision at God's initiative. Now Saul recognized this. We know he recognized it because he writes about it again and again in his letters. Remember, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, the apostle, the greatest missionary who's ever lived. And he wrote many of the letters that we have today in our New Testament. And several times he reflects back on this Damascus Road experience. Look at some of the things he says. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul knew it was God's grace that hit him that day. 
He was a sinner, the chief sinner, he called himself. He didn't deserve a relationship with the living God, and yet Jesus came to him. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Then in Galatians, he says, God set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Now, wait, 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 wait. Paul, I'm with you on this part about being called by grace. We see that in Acts 9. We see that in the story, right? Grace, Jesus comes to him. But what is this language of God set me apart before I was born? Hang on, Paul. Here in Galatians, Paul is saying, long before the Damascus Road, long before Saul himself was a persecutor of Christians, long before all of that, before he had even breathed his first breath, God chose him for salvation. Chose him. Now, is it just Paul that this applies to? No, because in Ephesians, look at what he says here. In Ephesians, he takes this same idea, which is sometimes called the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. And he gives it an even wider audience. It's not just Paul that it applies to. And he takes the divine decree even further back. Long before Paul was born, even further back. Look at what he says in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, that's you and me, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What? That's some deep stuff, Paul. That's like quantum realm deep. I'm not sure I understand it fully. You're telling me before the foundation of the world, God made a decision... To save us? That's what Paul says. The doctrine of election. Now, I remember, I imagine at this point you have several questions that are just ricocheting in your mind. You got like mental mosquitoes all over the place up there. I remember when I first was exposed to the doctrine of election, I had questions. Some of the first questions that came to my mind were these. What is the criterion for the divine decree. If it's true that in eternity past, God made a decision to save Paul, to save you and I, to save certain people, how did he make that decision? How did he decide on us? If you'll keep reading in Ephesians 1, do this later on your own time, if you keep reading in Ephesians 1, you'll see that God decided not because of anything in us, but because of something in him. Paul says it's in accordance with God's good purpose. It's not something in us. It's not that God looks to us and sees merit or goodness and therefore chooses us. No, no. It's nothing in us. It's something in him. Something known only to him. Now, the second question I remember, I remember asking when I was first exposed to this doctrine of election is, doesn't this negate the need for evangelism? Like, why bother with sharing the gospel, right? I mean, if it's true that in eternity past, for reasons known only to him, God chose certain people for salvation, then why do we need to carry the gospel to the nations? Doesn't this make evangelism pointless? But actually, 
as we'll see today, the doctrine of election, the sovereignty of God and salvation is the one thing that means evangelism can't be pointless. It gives it purpose. And I'll show you what I mean, but first, we need to think about human responsibility, the second point of the day. Human responsibility. In Paul's letters, we see without a doubt that God is in control of salvation. We see it in his own conversion story. But we also see, equally emphasized in Paul's letters, that humans are responsible. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about God's supreme power. When we talk about human responsibility, we mean two things. We mean first, the responsibility of the lost person to repent of their sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The lost person must make a decision, a decision that only he or she can make. And by human responsibility, we mean the responsibility of the believer. We must carry the gospel to the world. We see both of these in Romans 10. Look at what Paul says here. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how does a lost person come to salvation? Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. Decide to follow Jesus. Human responsibility. And what is the role of the Christ follower? Paul tells us in the very next verse. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? In other words, how will the lost be saved if we don't take the gospel to them? So you see, we have this theological quandary. What do we do with this? On the one hand, the Bible is clear. Divine sovereignty. God is in control of salvation. And on the other hand, the Bible is equally clear. Human responsibility. A lost person must make a decision to follow Jesus. We, the church, must carry the message to the world. It's a theological quandary. What do we do with it? Well, as we often do in confusing times like this, we'll turn to a trusted advisor for some help, someone much wiser than I am. In this case, we'll turn to a man named J.I. Packer. Some of you will know Packer's writings. Brilliant theologian with a, a knack for taking complex ideas and helping us understand them. One of Packer's most insightful books was one of his tiniest books, just over 100 pages long, written over 50 years ago, called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in this book, Packer talks about what he calls an antinomy. An antinomy. Now, maybe this is a new term for you. It was for me when I first heard it. Here's how he defines it. Packer says an antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are cogent reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid evidence. But it is a mystery to you how they can be squared with each other. An antinomy. Divine sovereignty. Human responsibility. Cogent reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid biblical evidence. But it remains a mystery to us how they can be squared with each other. So what do we do when we are faced with an antinomy? Packer says, 
You accept it, and you learn to live with it. You accept it, and you learn to live with it. You submit to the antinomy, and you do so by maintaining an equal emphasis, both truths. And that means there are two extremes we must avoid, two errors we must avoid here. The first error we must avoid is an exclusive concern with human responsibility. While it is true that we have the responsibility of taking the gospel to the nations, it is not solely up to us. You see, when we have an exclusive concern with human responsibility, when we begin to think, God, I will see to it that my friend is saved, it's easy for us to become manipulative in our methods, to adopt a no-holds-barred approach, to do whatever it takes in order to secure success. Listen to me, friends. We can't secure success, not if we define success as conversion, Only the sovereign God can change sinful hearts. The heart is not our territory. So really and truthfully, success in evangelism is not conversion. That's outside of our control. Success in evangelism is presenting Jesus. It's presenting Jesus. That's our role. So we can't have an exclusive concern with human responsibility, nor can we have, the second error, an exclusive concern with divine sovereignty. See, if the first error is saying, I will see to it, God, I got this, I will see to it that my friend is converted, the second error is saying, God, you got this, God, you see to it that my friend is converted. See the error? The second one is assuming that God will save people without us participating in the very plan of salvation. God has decided to use us as part of the process. God saves the nations by sending us to them. God saves our neighbors by sending us to them. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, in light of all this, let's bring it all together now. In light of all this, what is our role? What exactly are we called to in this task of evangelism? I'll state it as plainly as I can. Here's two big takeaways for us this morning. First, we present, we present Christ, God produces converts. This is plainly as I can state it. We present Christ, God produces converts. So we close our eyes in prayer, asking God to save our lost friends and family members. We close our eyes in prayer, and then we open our eyes, and we see the lost, and we open our lives, and we love them, and we open our mouths, and we share the truth. But in all of this, we remember, we share, but only God can save We talk, but only God can transform. So that's the first takeaway. The second one is that election is our motivation. 
This doctrine of election that we've been talking about this morning is actually our motivation in evangelism. Remember earlier I said to you, this is the one thing that is the guarantee that our evangelistic efforts won't be in vain. Now why do I say that? Why do I say that election is a motivating factor? Because that's exactly how this doctrine is wielded in Scripture itself. The story that I read at the beginning of our time in Acts 18, I want us to look at it again in closing here. But understand the context of what's happening. This is Paul, Saul of Tarsus. He's been converted. He's now Paul the, the apostle and missionary. He's traveling and he goes to a city called Corinth. And in Corinth, he's preaching the gospel. And some people believe and others don't. And Paul is becoming a bit discouraged. And in his moment of discouragement, that's when Jesus, the same Jesus who appeared to him on the Damascus Road, Jesus appears again. And look at what Jesus says. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people, and so Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. When Paul is in his moment of discouragement, Jesus shows up and reminds Paul of the doctrine of election. Do you see that? He says, Paul, there are people in this city that I have chosen. Before the foundation of the world, I chose them. Therefore, you must stay here and you must preach. And I guarantee you they will believe. You see how motivating this doctrine is for us? It's the guarantee, friends, that our evangelistic efforts will not be in vain. How much more excited we can be to go fishing when our trusted captain says to us, I guarantee you fish will be caught. It's the guarantee. It's the motivation. God, the mighty God who saves, he used Paul Paul wasn't silent. And God used him. God wants to use you and me in the same way. I told you in the opening week of this series about a man named Michael Green. If you were here, maybe you remember that. Someone who's been very influential in my own life. Michael Green, he's passed away now. But for many years, he was a professor of evangelism at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. Sort of a leading expert in evangelism, wrote books on the subject, trained churches and individuals, and of course did evangelism himself. It's probably not an exaggeration for me to say that I would not care as deeply as I do about evangelism and probably wouldn't be preaching this very series at Faith Church today if not for the influence of Michael Green, who I never met, though I know his writings well. In his autobiography, Adventure of Faith, Michael Green tells the story of how he became a Christian. This leading evangelist, this world-renowned scholar, how did he become a follower of Jesus? It's the story of a God who is mighty to save and some ordinary, very ordinary, Christian servants who were motivated to share I want to tell you the story in closing. Sit back and get comfy. It's going to take just a few minutes, but it's worth listening to, trust me. 
And I want you to go with me in your mind's eye to a place called Bristol, England. It's about 100 miles due west of London. And this is where our story begins. It begins with a young prankster. So think Fred and George Weasley, if you know the Harry Potter series. A young prankster who's heading off to Clifton College in Bristol, England. Green writes this. In the autumn of 1944, I began what I suppose proved to be the most decisive five years of my life. I had not really enjoyed my preparatory school, but I loved Clifton. I have fond memories of that first term when six of us junior boys were herded into what had been a single hotel bedroom, but now comprised six bunk beds, roughly lashed together, which left practically no floor space at all. That was where we lived. We quickly formed a close bonding, and before long, we were making gunpowder which we delighted to explode in all the most inappropriate situations. Little monsters that we were, we constructed blowpipes, which shot darts at people, dipped in formic acid, which we distilled ourselves. Our human targets would scratch the offending spot where the dart had touched their skin, and the inflammation grew. Such was the scene when a boy in my house invited me to come to a private, almost secret, meeting. It took place in the cricket pavilion on a Sunday afternoon. It was to do with Christianity. And it amazed me because it immediately showed me that Christianity was very different from what I had hitherto assumed it to be. Some 40 boys were listening to the professor of surgery at Bristol University who also, I discovered, edited the British Medical Journal. He was talking about Jesus Christ. And to my astonishment, he spoke with a quiet conviction that this Jesus was alive. Now, I knew a good deal about this Jesus. He had formed a background warmth to my growing up. Nobody, however, had ever suggested to me that Jesus was still alive and that he could make a real difference in the lives of 20th century people. Yet here was a highly intelligent scientist who not only believed it and lived in the light of it, but thought it so important that he was willing to give up his valuable spare time to instruct a bunch of schoolboys on the topic. It set me thinking. I decided to do two things. I would regularly attend the meetings of these enthusiastic friends of Jesus and see what I made of their teaching. I would also watch I would watch the members during the week and see if this profession that Jesus was alive made any difference to the way they behaved. Was Jesus really alive, risen, and relevant? I needed to examine the matter carefully for myself. And so I watched. I watched the members of this meeting for some eight or nine months and regularly attended their weekly gatherings. These were led by Richard Gorey the head boy of the school, who was a brilliant academic and a distinguished athlete. One summer day, he gave a talk on God's guidance. Now, by that time, it was clear to me that I could no longer resist the claim that Jesus was alive. I was now convinced 
that this Christian story was true. I realized it was all to do with Jesus. To me, however, he was still the stained glass window Jesus, the stranger of Galilee encased in the dusty books of the New Testament. So I went up to Richard Gorey at the end of his talk and I asked him, how does God guide us? It was not a very flattering question, come to think of it, since he had just delivered an excellent 20-minute dissertation on the subject. He looked at me with a wisdom beyond his nearly 18 years, and he invited me to come to the upstairs story of the Cricket Pavilion. And there, he led me to a living faith. I remember Richard. I remember him gently pointing out to me how I had affronted God by my way of life. I didn't argue. He showed me that Jesus Christ had done all that was necessary to bring me back to God. On the cross, he had taken responsibility for all the dark side of my life. That afternoon, I saw that Jesus had died for me personally, bearing responsibility for my failures and deliberate bad things. It was the evil in me, among others, which had held him to that cruel cross. He had done it willingly in his great love. The love of such a God, it broke me down. My second shock that afternoon was occasioned by my friend's gentle question about whether I believed that Jesus had risen from the grave. My searchings over the previous months had convicted me that Jesus was indeed alive. And I had no difficulty in telling Richard so. He then faced me with a crunch question. What are you going to do about him then? I began dimly to see that I was faced with a massive choice. I could either disengage from this Christ who had loved me and given himself for me, or else I could yield my whole life, my future, my career to him. There was no middle way. I was on the horns of a dilemma. I had to choose. Although there was much I did not understand, the heart of the matter was now sufficiently plain. The Jesus who had dealt with the barrier which seemed to make God so far away, the Jesus who had smashed the power of the last enemy by the great victory of Easter Day, this Jesus, Son of the living God, was alive. He was willing and able to enter my life by means of the Holy Spirit. It would be very demanding, however. It would mean that Jesus, not I, was henceforth to be number one in my life, my decisions, my behavior, ambitions, and relationships. Was I prepared for such a costly takeover? What is more, I would not be able to keep quiet about this overwhelming discovery. I would have to be willing to let my light shine, as the Gospels put it. How much I understood that Sunday afternoon, I don't recall, but I know I counted the cost of discipleship as best I could. That afternoon, I gladly and deliberately accepted Christ's offer. I did so with tears, tears of gratitude. Yes, tears. Tears from a reserved male in his mid-teens. Tears that hit the dust on the floor and bounced. What I love so much about this conversion story is here is Michael Green, world-famous evangelist, 
And how did God lead him to faith in Christ? Through the witness of two ordinary Christian servants. A professor, not a professor of theology, mind you, a professor of surgery, who was eager to talk about Jesus, and through a classmate, a friend, a scientist, and a schoolmate. That's who God used to bring Michael Green to faith in Christ. If God can work through a scientist and a schoolmate, He can work through you and me. He desires to do so. See, you and I, we're not the heroes of this story. We're not the leading actors. But we have a supporting role to play. Are you willing to play your part? To present the good news, the person and work of Jesus? Like we've done in previous weeks, I want to ask you to pray for a few minutes on your own, silently, reflecting on God's word today, asking the Lord, who is it in my life I need to share with? And then asking God to give you opportunities to do just that. I'm out of the way. You pray.